The, scripture, the, the sermon this morning is a topical sermon. We are having a baptism, and on such occasions it seems wise to speak to what we are doing. So that is what we're going to do. But we're going to start in a very surprising place. You may have heard that there is a war happening in Europe. It's made a few news channels, and occasionally it shows up on the internet. You may not have heard, but there is a war happening in Europe. It is a war between Russia and Ukraine, and uh, nobody's telling you why it's happening. They're just telling you that it is happening, and it's a terrible thing, and we should all be very concerned about it. Well, there are lots of reasons why this war is happening, and the reasons are complex. There are what could be called secular reasons, and those reasons are complex. But what you will never hear from the news media, because they don't know how to report this. It's not that they're being sinister per se. It's just they really don't know how to talk about something like this. There is religious reasons for the war happening right now in the Ukraine deeply entrenched religious reasons. And if you were to ask the rulers of the two nations involved in the war, they would give you these reasons as why it's happening. And the secular media just doesn't know how to talk about religion. It has no idea how to talk about that, so it doesn't. But the war happening today goes back to an event that happened in 988 A.D., and it was a baptism service. In 988 A.D., there was a man by the name of Vladimir. Vladimir was prince of the kingdom of the Rus, which is the, uh, you know, our Russia comes out of that. It is... Over a thousand years ago, and the Byzantium Empire still stands, and it is in the midst of a civil war. The generals in Byzantium have risen up, and they're trying to overthrow the Caesar, who rules in Constantinople. And the Caesar, a man by the name of Basil II, has run out of allies. So he turns and looks across the Black Sea, And he looks to the kingdom of the Rus, which has its capital at a city called Kiev. Kiev is a Russian city at this point. And he considers Vladimir the prince, and he figures the Rus could really save my bacon if they came to help me. So he appeals to Vladimir and says, come fight on my side, help me preserve the empire, If you do, I will give to you something that has never been given to a pagan prince ever before. I will let you marry my sister, whose name is absolutely unpronounceable, and I'm not even going to try it. But I will let you marry my sister, and you will become part of the royal family. The ties between our two nations will be submitted, and it will be a good thing for both of us. But there's one small problem. Though I want you as my ally, I really cannot in good conscience ally with a pagan country. 
And the Rus are pagan. They, they are following pagan, non-Christian religions. Um, if you're going to come and be my ally, especially if you're going to marry my sister, uh, you have to become a Christian. And not only that, your entire nation has to become Christian. That will be required for the uniting of our people. And Vladimir says, okay, cool. Sounds good to me. And so in 988 AD, in the city of Kiev, Vladimir makes a proclamation and says, guess what? If you are Russian, you are now going to be Christian. And the way that is going to work is y'all going to get baptized. And you're going to do it today. If you're in the city of Kiev, you're going to do it now. And I'm going to send proclamation out throughout my domain. Everybody gets baptized. Everybody becomes a Christian. That's how it works. You get baptized. You become a Christian. Um, this is, in history, the beginning of Russian Christianity. All the Russians become Christian because all the Russians are baptized. Um, this is a holy site for Russia. It is currently in the Ukraine, and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has split from the Russian Orthodox Church, and a great deal of the war is about uh, the Russian Orthodox Church maintaining the city of Ukraine, which is where the baptism of the Rus took place. And, oh, by the way, the Eastern Orthodox Church has declared Vladimir so holy for doing this that Vladimir has now been named Saint Vladimir, and specifically, Saint Vladimir equal to the Apostles, all in capital letters. So, this is a religious war, and it is over a baptism and where it took place. Is that how baptism works? Is it possible for a king to declare all my people go get baptized? Can a king do that? Does being baptized, quote, make you a Christian? Because in the mind of the Eastern Orthodox Church and in the minds of Vladimir, it absolutely did. Does being baptized make you a Christian? And uh, can an outer ceremony like baptism save your soul? This is the questions that arise out of this event. In Eastern Orthodoxy, the answer is, yes, a king can. Yes, baptism makes you a Christian. And yes, baptism saves your soul. But is that the truth? We have our Lord Jesus Christ's statement about what baptism does. We will first look at the question, does baptism make you a Christian? And the answer to this question is just a little nuanced. As our Lord is about to ascend into heaven, he has uh, had his earthly ministry. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. With these words, our Lord commissions the church in what is called the Great Commission. That's what we've chosen to call it, but it's a good title. He gives to the church the commission to go out and evangelize the world. And if we were an evangelical church every now and then, uh, about once every three months, I'd preach on this passage, and I'd say, y'all ought to go out there and be evangelizing, because it's the Great Commission. Uh, But what does Jesus say in this commission? Well, he says that all authority has been given to him, which seems to mean that he could give it to us, and he's got a job for us to do, and that job is to make disciples. You're going to go out into the world, and you're going to make disciples, and the way you make a disciple is kind of twofold. You teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, which would include the Great Commission, and that's its own sermon. But that's only half of it. You will be teaching them, that is a process, you will be educating them in everything that Christ has said. But something will happen first, and this will make a disciple. And that is, you will baptize them. All authority has been given to me, go out and begin to make disciples. This process will be, you will baptize them, and then you will teach them. This will be an ongoing process. And I will give you the power you need, and I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. This is what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples, and baptism is part of the making of a disciple. What is a disciple? It's a religious word that we use in church quite a lot. But if you ask a Christian to define what a disciple is, we oftentimes have a little bit of trouble with that. We, we stutter and say, well, um, uh, you know, it, um, it's, a stu- uh, it's a student. Well, yes and no. I am a college professor, and I'm also your pastor, but... Are my students my disciples? Or are you my disciples? At the time of Jesus of Nazareth, lots of men had disciples. It was kind of a common practice. Are you my disciple? Well, the answer is, from the point of view of what the word originally meant, what it means in the New Testament, not exactly. I mean, I'm... I'm, on the session, I'm, I'm the, the first among equals of the shepherds of the church, but you're disciples of Christ. You're not really disciples of me. Uh, a disciple is someone who dedicates themselves to a teacher to the point that they really kind of give up everything else they're doing in life, and they follow that teacher. Uh, the closest thing we've had in living memory is people who decided to follow the Grateful Dead around the world because they wanted to be deadheads. By definition, they had kind of become disciples. Because discipleship is not just being a student. It is so giving your life over to something that you eat, drink, and sleep it. Now, you may not be a disciple of a person forever. There is a 
an escape clause. If you decide this isn't what I want my life to be about, you can go somewhere else. But during the time you're a disciple, you follow your teacher, you live with your teacher, you support your teacher while you live with him. I don't want you people coming home. I mean, I'm sorry. I love you. But honestly, I like the space difference. A disciple has given their life over to the teacher. So a disciple is something very significant. It is a life given to eating, drinking, and sleeping this particular teaching. What does the word Christian mean in Scripture? Now, I ask this question not asking you what does Christian mean in common parlance. Because in common parlance, when you and I use the term Christian, most of the time we mean a saved, sanctified person, born again by the power of God through the word, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, redeemed, right? That's how we use the term. The term is the name of our religion. If somebody asks you what you are, you will say, I'm a Christian. Do you know how many times in the entirety of the 66 books of the Bible the term Christian is used? Would anyone like to guess? It's an important word. I mean, we use it all the time. But how many times does it show up in Scripture? The answer is it will show up three times. The times it shows up are Acts 26, 28, 1 Peter 4, 16, and Acts 11, 26. And if we only had these three references in the New Testament, we would be able to define the question of what a Christian is but only by one of the references. If we go through them, the first two that I mentioned don't really help. In the book of Acts, chapter 26, uh, and verse 28, that has this reference to the term Christian. Come on. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. So the phrase is used like we use it about our religion. Agrippa is a secular ruler, and he's talking to the Apostle Paul, and he says, you know, you almost persuade me to be one. All right? And really define what it is. First uh, Peter 4 and 16. There we read this about the term. Uh, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those 4.16 that would be 3.16 in a good verse, but 4.16 uh, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter So the Apostle Peter uses the term Christian. He says, you may suffer for being one, and if you suffer for being a Christian, you glorify God. Still doesn't really define what the word means, but it's obviously something very positive 
if you suffer for being one, you're glorifying God. The third reference, going back to the book of uh, Acts, and this time in chapter 11, this one actually does define the term. Acts 11 and verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So, of our three references to the word Christian, one of them is defining, and Luke tells us what a Christian is. A Christian is a disciple. It's a synonym for the term disciple. Are all disciples saved, sanctified, and born again. Again, the way we tend to use the term, we tend to assume it. We assume that if a man is a disciple of Christ, if he is walking religiously as a Christian, he's a saved man. But is that really the case? Well, again, turning to the words of Scripture we can see very clearly that it is not the case always. If we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and beginning in verse 60, we have had the feeding of the 5,000, and there have been disciples, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. They have eaten from a miracle, and they have followed Christ across uh, the pond, and they are pursuing him to have another meal, And we take up in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Well, the hard saying is, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus is talking about the substitutionary atonement, but he's talking about it under imagery that they don't get. And even if they could get it, they're not going to. They don't want to hear about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so the disciples say, okay, this is a hard message. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, let that sink in for a second. Twice, John the Apostle has defined these people as disciples. They have dedicated their life to following the Lord Christ. Uh, They support him. They go where he goes. But Jesus says to some of these disciples... Some of you do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. 
So in these six verses, Jesus has looked at some disciples, and they've been called disciples, and he has said, you don't believe, and at the end of the passage, which just chillingly happens to be John 6, verse 66, just one of those weird kind of things, uh, some of these disciples turn and they no longer walk with Jesus, they stop being disciples, and the Greek is very emphatic, it means they're out of here, they are not coming back, they are walking away, that's enough of that. So, is every disciple a saved, sanctified, blood-bought, born-again person? Well, the answer biblically is no. Not every disciple is. Now, saved people are disciples. The New Testament doesn't know anything about a saved person who doesn't live as a disciple. Jesus gives the, 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 the beckoning, come and follow me. The rich young ruler is welcomed by Christ, and he welcomes him to walk with him as a disciple, but the rich young ruler can't do that because he loves his wealth and he walks away. Jesus bids him to walk with him, to be a disciple. Judas, the disciple, and an apostle, goes out into the night. He walks away from Christ on that night. He leaves discipleship. It's very clear that he's not a saved person. A saved person would be with Jesus. Every saved, believing person is a disciple. In fact, Solomon, when he talks about uh, wise people, says in Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Saved people join with their Lord. They walk as disciples. There is no scripture witness to a saved, sanctified, blood-bought person who says, well, that was cool. Now I'm done with religion because I'm a saved man. I don't have to walk with the Lord. But not every disciple is a believer. Not every disciple is blood-bought and, and converted. This explains why you can have things happen like he was such a pillar of the church and he even taught Sunday school and we made him a deacon, but he betrayed the Lord, and now he's walking in darkness. How can that happen? Well, it happens because you can be a disciple and not a believer. But you can't be a believer without being a disciple. And baptism is not the beginning of you being a believer. There is no outward ceremony that can be used to give you faith. Faith is a gift of God. It is a supernatural gifting Baptism can't start that. But baptism starts the life of discipleship, and the life of discipleship is the essence of learning, education, and evangelism. In our modern culture, we tend to divide evangelism and discipleship. We say we should evangelize the lost. And by that we mean we should go out and give them the four spiritual laws, or we should walk them through the Romans' road, 
we should give them the saving message of Jesus Christ, and that's pretty much it. And we should, once they are converted, then we should disciple them. But again, if you go to the pages of Scripture, that's not how it works. Jesus bids men to come follow him, and in following him and being a disciple, this is the process of our Lord evangelizing people. He is sharing the gospel because the gospel is himself. He is sharing the good news of himself every day of the week as he disciples his disciples, and this is evangelism. We do damage, I think, when we pull them apart. We make the saving message too simplistic. The message is Jesus himself. And people need discipled to be evangelized. They also, when they are educated, biblically, they are being discipled, or they should be. I said, my students at the college are not my disciples. I said, you're not my disciples. But in a very real sense, if someone is going to be learning, they need to be disciples. And they need to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, we have pulled apart discipleship and education. We send our children to a secular school and we say, they're being educated. And then we bring them to the church and here we say, well, they're being discipled. But discipleship is learning. It is a kind of education. And According to Scripture, what is the beginning of knowledge? The beginning of what we can call knowledge. What is its beginning? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Education is about knowledge, right? I mean, that's why you're doing it. Well, Scripture says the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you're not getting knowledge. You're not, you may be getting a few facts, but you don't know what to do with them. You're not really getting educated. Real education is discipleship. It begins with fear of the Lord. The only way you get fear of the Lord is if you walk with the Lord, you're being discipled. Everything about the educational growing process is discipleship. And when does that start according to Jesus? How do you make a disciple? Well, you teach them, but it begins with baptism. And you can call a disciple a Christian, and you're not wrong, but you need to understand not all Christians are born and sanctified, saved people. If they were, our churches would look very different, but they don't. Baptism is not about political power. Baptism is about making disciples. And you can call disciples Christians. Now, what about the idea that a king can demand it? There is nothing in Scripture that gives to the office of the king to be involved in the discipleship process. Look from one cover to the other of the Bible, and you will not find in the office of kingship that he is given to disciple. Which, again, going back to the idea of our secular schools, what does that say about our secular schools? The king is not assigned that task. 
But who is assigned the task of doing discipleship? Well, remember what discipleship is. It is a learning a teaching, living in that teaching day in and day out, absorbing the teaching, uh, giving your life over to the teaching. Where do we see that happening in Scripture? Well, there are two principal places I would point you to. The first one is in Deuteronomy. It is Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 4 and going through verse 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Does that sound like discipleship? It should, because that's the very definition of what it is. Discipleship is living the teaching day in and day out, learning it as you walk along the way, as you sit in the house, as you rise up, as you lay down, the teaching is on the, the wall. The teaching is on the entrance to the door. Who's being told to do this discipling? Well, it's mom and dad. Children have been given to you. You are to disciple them. Uh, you know, who, who are children waking up to? Well, you. When they go to bed at night, who are they going to bed for? You. Who's feeding them? Whose house are they in? Yours. So God is saying, disciple your children. But someone might say that's Old Testament, that's Moses' law. Okay, let's turn to the New Testament. Let us turn to the book of Ephesians and hear what the very New Testament Paul has to say. In chapter 6, in verse 1 through 4, we read this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So that's the locus of where this obedience is. It's in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of, of the Lord. Now, when this is preached on, it's usually mom and dad raise your children, but discipleship isn't mentioned. But this is the very definition of what discipleship is. Discipleship is when you raise someone in the Lord. When the Lord is the focus of their teaching day in and day out, their life is given over to it. Fathers, if you're going to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, you are discipling them. And the teaching of Christ is not just, quote, religious. There is nothing that our Lord Christ does not lay hold of. When you teach your child anything, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Vladimir, but it's not really given to you 
to uh, do this discipling, but it is given to mom and dad. You are given children, God gives them to you, and God doesn't just give you children and say, you know, let me know how it works out with them. God gives you children and says, disciple them. Teach them the word of the Lord from the word go, from the cradle. Teach them the truth of God as you lie down, as you rise up, as you walk along the way. Teach them the fear and admonition of the Lord from the word go, because they're really not yours. The Lord has loaned them to you and assigned you a job to disciple them. Now, you may also disciple other people. Jesus had many disciples, and that was a common practice. But the most raw essence of discipleship you'll ever encounter is the flock that is in your house because you've got a captive audience for 18 years. And God gave you that captive audience for a purpose, to raise them in the Lord, to disciple them. If anybody is to be discipled, it's the children of the church, and you're given to do it. Discipleship is very much a mom and dad kind of thing. Baptism begins the process of discipleship, but an outward symbol cannot save the soul. You're all Protestants, and you all agree to that. I'm a Protestant, and I agree to that. But if I were Eastern Orthodox, I would now raise my hand, and I would say, Reverend Westbrook, um, you're not looking at a certain number of passages in the New Testament. There is saving language connected to baptism. In fact, if you go to 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter will say, now this baptism also saves you. Baptism saves you. So when Vladimir had the Russians baptized, they were all getting saved. Because that outward symbol, that saves. And Peter says so. Well, uh, it's a good question. Let's look at the passage that my hypothetical, hypothetical Eastern Orthodox man would raise. It is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. I'm going to read it from the New King James Version, although uh, the translation here is weaker than in some translations, but it's what I use. So 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. He's been talking about uh, the flood, and now we read, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the oh come on, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A number of translations translate it not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Either word works. An answer that says a good conscience, a pledge. Pledge is a little bit more to the point, but this isn't wrong. Uh, baptism now saves you. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it is the pledge of a good conscience towards God, which is going to come from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right seat of God, 
angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. A pledge is being made in baptism. It is a pledge that you will have a good conscience towards God. Okay? Who can make that pledge? Can your parents, who, if you're an infant, bring you to the water of baptism, can they pledge you will have a good conscience towards God? Do they have the power to do that? No. Even the most holy of parents, they can't make God that promise. Um, The king certainly can't do it. What about you? In the background of the question is not only my hypothetical Eastern Orthodox guy, there's also the hypothetical Baptist guy. Because he will point to this passage and say, baptism is a pledge of a good conscience towards God. Uh, A a little bitty baby can't make that pledge. Well, you're right, a little bitty baby can't. But the question is, can you? Can you, adult, can you look in the eyes of God and say, God, I am promising you that I will have a good conscience towards you. I am promising you that the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will affect me, and I will have a good conscience towards you. I promise you that, God. Can you do that? I fear for you if you think you can do that. If you think you can look in God's eyes and say, Lord, I am going to be a good man to the point where I have a good conscience before you. There will be nothing on my conscience before you. I'll do that. This is my promise. If you think you can do that, you are harder than the most hardcore Romanist out there. Even the most ardent Roman Catholic will occasionally talk about grace, But what we are talking about here is you promising God you will have a good conscience. No man here will ever keep that promise. It can't be done if he makes it. So who has the power to make a promise of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Well, this passage only makes sense if the baptism itself is the promise But the promise is not coming from a person, whether they're adult or baby. The promise is coming from God to the person receiving it. Baptism is given from God. It is a visible sign. It is what we call a sacrament. God has given a sign to his church. It is the word of God enacted. And God is making a promise that you can have a good conscience towards God by his power, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which he did, this is the word of God declared to you. God can promise you that you can have a good conscience, right? He has the power to do that. Well, that is what is happening. That is why it is said this baptism now saves you, not the removal of of dirt from the flesh, but what saves you is the promise. God is the covenant-keeping God. He makes promises, He promises you salvation in Christ. Why do you have it? You have it because he promised it, and God never goes back on his promises. You do, I do, we are faithless as all get out, but God isn't. God will keep his promises. 
So, does this outer ceremony save the soul? Absolutely not. But the outer ceremony is a promise from God that God will save the soul. It's just like, does your Bible save you? Well, kind of, because God gives faith through reading the Word and hearing it. God works through baptism, which makes a disciple. God works through the discipleship process. God raises up the gift of faith through His promise. But I can't save you. It would be amazing power if I could. If, if the minister of your church had the power to save you, you have no idea the manipulative power I would have. I'm sorry, but I don't really like you. You don't get saved. You, I like you. I'll save you. I don't have that power. And you ought to be very glad I don't. You ought to be very glad that no church on earth has that power. Vladimir can't save the Russians. But God makes a promise through baptism. How do you apprehend a promise? You apprehend it by belief. Belief is worked in you by the Holy Spirit and the promises of God. Baptism is a promise of a good conscience. When you believe God, you're a saved person, right? That's what's being talked about. We are about to have a baptism. We are going to have a baptism of a very small person. And this very small person is not making a promise. This very small person is not being saved by my actions. But this very small person is receiving a promise from God. In what we are about to do, God has given a ceremony to his church that communicates to Asher, I can give you a good conscience towards me because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And in doing this, Asher's parents are going to now officially enroll Asher in the category Disciple. From day in and day out, Asher is going to walk in being taught the things of the Lord. He's going to be taught by mom and dad, primarily, but he's also going to be taught by the community. He is going to walk in the outer church, the visible church, and he is going to be discipled as he rises up, as he lays down, as he goes about his life, The things of God are going to be communicated to him as a disciple, and we hope and we pray that God will work faith in his heart and will bring him to life. That's what's happening. It's not magic, but it's God speaking. And if any man is saved, it's not an earthly king that saved them. It is the king of kings and the lord of lords who works his power.